Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Monday morning, the 21st of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The once great city of Mariupol has been razed to the ground. 300,000 people are trapped there this morning. A Russian proposal to allow people to leave through safe corridors closed at 2 o'clock this morning. Ukraine rejected the Russians' offer of safe passage for civilians because it hinged on a Russian ultimatum that that Mariupol's defenders laid down arms. What this means now for the 300,000 people still in the city today is not clear, but fighting continues and the war drags on, not just in Mariupol, of course, but across the Ukraine. The Archbishop of Armagh and Primate of All-Ireland joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Archbishop Eamon Martin, and thank you for joining us on the programme this morning. I imagine, like all of us, you're struggling to make sense of this war. Well, uh, good morning, Michael, and good morning to all of your listeners. I think that we were stunned by all of this over the last uh, three, four weeks. Uh, first of all, we had that um, uh, all of the discussion about whether or not Putin was actually going to invade Ukraine. And I was speaking to one Ukrainian family here in Armagh, and they told me that their their friends back at home thought, you know, this is all kind of war games. This isn't going to happen. And then suddenly the bombs are falling, people are fleeing. Uh, The United Nations yesterday said that 10 million people have now been displaced from their homes. Um, Three million of those, as we know, have moved uh, across the Ukrainian border. The rest are finding refuge somewhere in Ukraine itself. Um, This is just a disaster. And to think that it's happening in Europe with uh, people that we, we meet in Ireland from time to time, Ukrainians and other people from those parts of Eastern in Europe. Um, it's, it's almost if it's on our back door. And uh, I think that a lot of people are stunned, shocked and deeply saddened and, and want to help and want to do what they can for mm. these poor people. Absolutely. And of course, then there's the death toll, which is unknown, but I think is probably expected to run to tens of thousands of people. When we watch 
the scenes on television as all of us do every evening and uh, look at uh, the way people are being terrorised and cities are being levelled in the way they are and there's bodies under the rubble and bodies out on the streets. Uh, it's hard not to look at Mariupol which is of course of great focus uh, this morning and has been uh, over the course of this war so far but it's hard n- not to look at Mariupol and think if there is a hell on earth there it is. It is indeed. And the, the other thing is that um, it's this sense of that it's, it's actually inhuman. Uh, you know, I think sometimes people think of war, you know, as armies fighting armies. But this is actually terror because we basically have the senseless massacre of people who are sheltering, who are, who are trying to hide from war. And uh, they themselves are being targeted, it appears. Um, women and children in residential areas, shopping centres, hospitals, maternity hospitals and and that's what makes us realise how cheap human life has become almost uh, as this is part of a war uh, effort to try to terrorise the the people of Ukraine and indeed to get a surrender there and and I think that we ourselves looking on feel so powerless, I mean I know that all of us here we would like to help but we just feel we cannot do anything and we even feel our governments can't do anything and uh, that is what makes this all, you know, really madness, you know, in a sense, the slaughter, the atrocities there. The, 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 and also to think that in the middle of it all, uh, you know, there, is there hope? Um, I really, uh, I think that we ourselves as Christian people, we're, we're praying, we're praying for peace. Uh, this Friday, uh, Pope Francis is going to lead the church right across the world in an act of prayer at um, four o'clock on Friday afternoon. He's calling upon the bishops, the priests, the people of the whole world to unite in prayer for peace to Mary, the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And it's interesting that Mariupol is named, it's the city of Mary. And and I think that really there's a great cry going out from the whole of of the earth, really, for peace at this time. Will that mean much to the Russian population? Well, I hope, I, I really do believe that, that, you know, people say they talk about the power of prayer. It's something that I do believe in. I think that prayer can change hearts. Uh, prayer can touch people. It can touch families. Because we must remember that, that the generals, the people who are planning this, they have families, they have homes, they have, they, they have children themselves. And you're really appealing to what is best in the human person to really see the senseless loss of life here and to uh, ask people to look, find ways of dialogue, of diplomacy. Um, I would think that war, we're seeing it now more than ever, war is really a defeat for politics. It's a defeat for diplomacy and dialogue. And it really reminds all of us about the importance of peace and how every single one of us in our own homes, in our own lives, our own families and communities and workplaces and schools and universities, we can be peacemakers reconcilers, people who bring harmony, not destruction and discord and strife wherever we go. Okay, there's been a a lot of uh, comparisons with uh, the Second World War and uh, some Eastern Europeans uh, tell me that in certain corners of uh, the world, Mr. Putin is known as 
Pootler, uh, and uh, there are photographs of his face merging with that of Adolf Hitler. Uh, but there's a, another comparison to the Nazis uh, from Maria Paul again over the weekend where it's being reported that tens of thousands or certainly a number of thousands of people uh, were taken out of the city uh, uh, against their will, passports taken off them uh, and sent off to so-called filtration camps in Russia. Uh, um, again, a lot of these uh, stories, I'm not sure how if any of these are being verified, but I mean... We've seen awful things in our television screens. We've seen the the awful destruction of property, of livelihoods, of human life itself. So you know, whenever humanity reaches that that terrible low, it's it's terrible what we can do. But what we have to do ourselves here in Ireland, in County Louth, in wherever we are today, we have to say, what 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 positives can I bring to this situation? And I know, and it's it's really touching to see the way people have really poured out their hearts in charity, in love, and in welcome uh, to the Ukrainian refugees. Uh, all of our parishes, all of our communities, they're, they're finding a charitable way to reach out, whether it is to bring uh, f- clothes, food, supplies, through vans and lorries, or indeed just to make donations to some of the big charities who are working on the ground in Ukraine and in the surrounding areas. That's where we reach out. We reach out in prayer, we reach out in charity and of course in the coming weeks and months we're likely more and more of us to be encouraged to maybe reach out by opening our doors, showing a compassionate welcome to people who need refuge for a short while in our homes Mm. and in our parishes. Because what's happening in Ukraine uh, I'm sure could test people's faith uh, but uh, as you say there is this yin and yang, if you like, uh, because there's uh, so much humanity uh, to compare to the inhumane actions of uh, the Russians on the ground here and across the rest of Europe, for that matter. That's true. We're seeing the very worst of humanity, but also the very best of humanity, the compassion, the love, the welcome, the support that people are bringing. And you can see that there's some beautiful moments that are being shown to us on our television screens. And I'm sure there are many, many more happening quietly under the radar on the ground where people are being good. Mm. And this, this week especially, Michael, you know, maybe all of us just try to be a bit better and really in our own lives you know because look there's strife there's discord there's things at home where we need to show love and show forgiveness maybe reconciliation to be peacemakers that spreads Mm. and and that's what we're calling for in the world at the moment this will test us in time to come and for a long time to come uh, because uh, it's not just what's happening there, it's coming here and that great compassion and Cade uh, Mila Falce that people are extending to Ukrainians uh, will result in added pressure for people because we'll be talking later in the programme about the increase in energy prices and so forth. Undoubtedly that will get worse because of the war but then we have to facilitate all of these people and uh, the pressure that will put on the state coffers uh, and people are going to have to be tolerant. Uh, would you be concerned that that tolerance may wane over a period of time? I hope not. I think that people will be prepared to make some sacrifices and to realise that perhaps I need to feel some sacrifice in my own life, um, given the awful things that are happening in the world. And um, look, we have our own troubles here in Ireland. We have our own people who are struggling on the streets, looking for homes, looking for shelter. And uh, maybe this is making us more aware of the the people on the margins and the peripheries whom we can so easily walk past and 
we can so easily forget as we get on with our own troubles and our own lives. I think it's also a time when everyone is thinking about family. They're thinking about, uh, you know, our own people, our own uh, relatives, friends, neighbours. And just as COVID did, it brought out the very best in people. I think I'm hoping that this terrible tragedy and madness that's going on in Ukraine will help to bring out some of the, the positive side of all of us. Okay, well, look, we appreciate your time and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. That is the Archbishop of Armagh and Primate of All Ireland, Archbishop Eamon Martin. Now, we'll stay in Mariupol uh, and uh, hear a little bit about what is going on there because uh, Ukrainian MP Inna Sovson has been speaking with Times Radio and we'll hear, first of all, a little bit about what's been happening in Kharkiv. Uh, Kharkiv is uh, going on under, uh, it's terrible. What is happening over there is very bad. Just this morning, we heard that five people were killed in yet another shelling um, attacks that were taking place during the night. One of them is a nine-year-old boy which uh, for for me as a mother of a nine-year-old boy was particularly painful to read. But they continue to bombard Kharkiv, uh, not so much from air, uh, because apparently Ukrainian army shot down several planes over there. So so the the pilots of Russian army are now afraid to go to Kharkiv. Uh, But uh, they keep on bombarding it from the ground and and, uh, destroying the infrastructure. I am in touch with many people over there. They're all texting me, in Russian, by the way, uh, saying that they hate Putin, they want him out, and they want to to know that uh, they will stand, they will keep their, uh, they will keep their, uh, sorry, uh, they're uh, there as long as it is possible. But uh, you know, uh, they are under extreme pressure. Uh, again, they, it's not as bad as in Mariupol, but Kharkiv is, is second biggest victim to, to to Putin over here in Ukraine right now. Okay, and to Mariupol or Mariupol as we've been calling it here, and those reports that people have been taken by the Russians into Russia against their will, uh, where they're now working in camps of some sort that they call filtration camps. Because it is a totalitarian state. It is doing what other totalitarian states did in the history. Uh, we, uh, I, mean, I mean, I'm still surprised every time I hear that, but the very logic of Russia right now is the logic of the Soviet time, uh, of the Soviet Union and the logic of the Nazi Germany. It is a completely totalitarian state and it is acting as one. So from what we know uh, from the city mayor and the city council is they're taking Ukrainian citizens, they're uh, sending them through what are called the filtration camps, and then they're being relocated to very distant parts of Russia where they're been forced to sign papers that they will stay in that area for two or three years and they will work for free in that in those areas. This these is exactly what these people, I beg your pardon, these are the people who have been removed from Mariupol just in the last few days or few weeks. They're being told yes. they need to go somewhere and work for yes. free, effectively labor camps. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's it's terrifying. It's terrifying. How do you know this? Uh, we know that from the city mayor, and then the information was also confirmed by the city council. So that is as good as it gets uh, in terms of information we're getting from Mariupol. Well, that's effectively again, slave labour. Uh, it is. Yes, it is. There you go. That's uh, Ukrainian MP Inna Sobson. She was speaking to Times Radio. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
Dundalk Sports Centre is closed today to those who normally use the centre. This is according to the Argus in Dundalk, which is reporting on a letter from Jared McGahey, the sports facilities operation manager to users of the complex. And it says Louth County Council have a clear record of helping those in need and are ready to respond to the needs of our fellow human beings in the humanitarian crisis unfolding caused by the war in Ukraine. Due to this crisis, Louth County Council have decided to suspend the indoor service provision at Dundalk Sports Centre from today, Monday the 21st of March. And the letter says this is to accommodate refugees from Ukraine. Let's uh, speak uh, to the Cahirlock of Dundalk Municipal Council, Maria Doyle, who's a Fine Gael councillor on Louth County Council and on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Maria Doyle, and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, am I right in thinking there's some confusion about this decision? Yes, there seems to be, Michael. Um, certainly as councillors and myself as Cahirlock, as you say, of the municipal district, I wasn't aware um, of this until some of the clubs that use the sports centre alerted me to it. And then I did see a copy of the letter online or on Facebook, actually. But until then, I wasn't aware that this plan was, was happening and that it was happening so so soon. So there seems to be a little bit of maybe um, uh, more information that's needed. Um, and as you know, we have our monthly county council meeting this morning at 10. And I understand that the chief executive of Loud County Council will be updating us on the council's plans. Uh, I understand too that the council over the last week have been working with the Department of Housing, the Department of Children, the Irish Protection Accommodation Services and the Local Government Management Association, the LGMA, to see how local authorities, I suppose nationwide, will be will be assisting this crisis in terms of housing refugees. But with regards mm. to Dock Sports Centre, there is more information that we need. Well, yeah, well, you haven't been briefed, have you? Um, you're relying on information from others or what you're reading on Facebook, uh, if I, I'm not mistaken in uh, understanding what you've just said. Yes, no, we haven't been briefed and uh, there's nothing about it as far as I can see in our uh, Chief Executive's report that we get at every County Council meeting. I had to read through that. I couldn't see anything on this. But of course that report may have been produced before these plans uh, were were developed because, you know, it is a very fluid crisis. Mm. The Council haven't to act uh, with short notice and I completely understand that. And I do have faith in the Director of Services that he will put a good plan together but we just need to know what that is. I suppose my concerns around the use of the sports centre were um, really just, I mean, as you know, I'm a primary school teacher and we already have children who come from difficult circumstances into school. And I would hate to think of, of children coming to school who have been sleeping on the floor of a sports centre the night before. So I'd like to think that if it's, it's that, that people will be used, only using it as a very, very short-term basis if they're using it at all. Okay. And that it would be housed adequately. I understand the Irish Red Cross have had over 20,000 pledges of accommodation, which is absolutely fantastic. And we just need to make sure that families are able to take up that accommodation as soon as possible, that it's appropriate accommodation for families. Mm, well, of course. Uh, but is that your understanding of this plan? Uh, that the sports centre would be used as housing, that people would be sleeping on the floor or well, beds brought into it or whatever. I, well, I'm, that's what I gathered from the letter, but of course mm. I don't really know, Michael. I don't know the plan. Right. So I'm, I'm just going on, you know, maybe it's just going to be used as a reception centre, maybe it's going to be mm. used just... Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, uh, could be, it could be that it would be a hub where Ukrainians uh, who are in the Dundalk area would meet and have a facility where they could come together. Yeah, I mean, there is very many potential uses um, and in the letter though I, 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 from the letter that I saw 
I did see the word accommodate, and, and I, I saw, I, you know, I thought perhaps that was one of the purposes. But as you say, there could be there could be several purposes that that the, and, and that's what I'd like to know. What is mm. the plan? Yeah, you well, know, it needs a proper plan. Well, I mean, if people are going to sleep in there tonight, you'd imagine that that would have been approved by the Red Cross. But if there's twenty thousand offers of accommodation, you would also imagine that there may be more appropriate ways of accommodating people. Yeah, and I'd like to think there, that there are. I mean, we want to make sure that people um, have proper living quarters, sleeping quarters, places to to, to um, hide for hygiene, to, to wash, and to use toilet facilities. So, um, yeah. So I, I don't know what it's going to be used for. I don't know even now mm-hmm. if it is definitely going to be used. I understand that it may not be used. So hopefully by. Uh, the end of our council meeting this morning, we'll have a lot more information on this. Okay, and if the sports centre is closed to those who normally use it, what impact will that have on the community? It's a valuable resource, isn't it? It is a valuable resource, and yes, there are a lot of people, clubs, and who use it, and it's a very, very busy place. It's a fantastic resource for this area, for Dundalk and the wider area. Um, I'd like to think that if it is going to be used and it is not going to be available to those clubs, those clubs and groups would be assisted by Loud County Council finding alternative premises um, that they can use, and I hope that that could happen. Um, but we'll, we'll see what happens over the next couple of days. OK. Have you any sense of how many people may be arriving in Dundalk over the coming days, weeks or months, for that matter? I don't, actually. Um, I mean, obviously, with the, the amount of pledges of accommodation that the Irish Red Cross are mentioning, that there could be a significant number. Um, it's certainly going to rise. Uh, the situation isn't getting any better. And I know that so far we've been, you know, uh, making sure that people from Ukraine are greeted here with open arms. And I hope that continues. I know that it will continue. And um, I think um, all sorts of community groups and schools and so on will do whatever they can and local authorities uh, to welcome people and to make sure that they, they, they get the support and that they get as well, like the psychological support and so on that they they will need after the trauma they've been through. But no, I personally don't have ideas of numbers and um, I'd say it, it'll just grow and grow. Okay, maybe there'll be some clarity on that uh, as well uh, through uh, the council meeting uh, this morning uh, and uh, we'll uh, get updates, no doubt, throughout the day uh, on all of these issues. Maria Doyle, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Maria Doyle, who's uh, the Cahirlock of Dundalk Municipal Council and a Fine Gael councillor on Louth County Council. Now, thanks to Eileen in Dundalk, who was on the phone to us this morning, and Eileen says, watching the scenes in Ukraine, Michael, and at times you think it was a movie not actually real life but it is so many poor innocent children and adults being killed and for what? What I find most disconcerting is that this is happening while the rest of the world just looks on and watches this horrific loss of lives I don't know why we want uh, we don't want a third world war Uh, But we are prepared to keep sacrificing these poor people to protect the rest of us. It it just doesn't sit right with me. Uh, If Putin attacked a NATO country, the response would be different. Is that morally right, Uh, says Eileen. Well, thanks uh, for that. Uh, I think that nine million people uh, have left, one and a half million children have left, uh, and thousands of people have lost their lives. The death toll from Ukraine will not be known for some time to come. Uh, There is uh, the concern, of course, that if there was military intervention from NATO, uh, that that death toll uh, would spread across the world and it could be the end of the world. And that is a a very real concern because of nuclear war. Uh, There is also the idea that 
the Russian troops are so depleted and deflated as a result of the intense fighting uh, that they will stop in Ukraine. Uh, that seems to be a feeling that's coming from some of uh, the bordering countries uh, who were fearful that uh, Russia would continue on into Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia uh, and so on. Jim Andrade says, I'm very proud at how Ireland is responding to the crisis in Ukraine and opening its arms to as many refugees who want to come here. But my worry is that the proper help will not be in place for them. Have we enough accommodation? Have we enough school places? Are more resources being put into our health system? Thanks, uh, Jim, uh, for that. I think probably no, no, no is uh, the answer to your question. Uh, But does that mean that we don't do whatever we can? Uh, There's some very uh, tough times ahead, I'm sure, for all of us, uh, but none tougher than those that people are experiencing in Ukraine and trying to get out of Ukraine. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us so far this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the front page of the Irish Daily Mail today makes for interesting reading in the context of uh, the price of everything going in one direction. It says food is next to rocket in price. Fuel inflation will add pressure on household staples, while a raft of consequent pay claims could lead to industrial relations troubles. The paper quotes retail management expert Damien O'Reilly saying pasta is set to double in price. Your pint of beer and your fish and chips will be going up in price too. Adrian Cummins of the Restaurants Association saying the hospitality sector is a major energy user and we've seen bills rocket by approximately 50% in the last six weeks. You add that to the cost of petrol or diesel and getting the food into the restaurant and well you're going to see prices go up and up and as uh, the Daily Mail is saying people are going to be looking for big pay uh, increases and there's a suggestion that claims in uh, the public sector could be up as much as 15%. Whether they'll be met or not is another day's work, but it gives an indication uh, of how the cost of living is set to soar. Let's uh, speak to Darren O'Rourke, who's Sinn Féin's spokesperson on Climate Action, Communications Network and Transport, and a TD for me at least. And a very good morning to you, Darren O'Rourke, and thanks for joining us. Uh, it's going to become a luxury to heat your home to begin with, uh, and then you have everything else on top of that. Yes, it, it really is. Um, it looks like a major, major challenge, Michael, and those headlines, and we, we saw similar over the weekend, the SRI uh, pointing towards soaring inflation, um, 7%, estimating 7% this year, and another 5% next year. Um, I, I heard on the radio this morning um, that some people were estimating that 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 might be on the low side. That could it could be in the region of ten percent this year, and, and that's what some others are, are indicating as well. We have the EU pointing towards uh, uh, increased interest rates, and we know you know what's happening in relation to fuel. We know what's happening in relation to fertilizer, and we have indications of what's going to happen, uh, and is already happening in the area of of food. So that's going to put tremendous pressure on um, on, on, on households mm-hmm. and I think it's really important uh, and it's really important for government to recognise that not everybody uh, feels that burden in the same way so there needs to be a, a, a targeted response and I think in particular Michael for those people who are on 
fixed and low incomes, whether they're on social welfare payments, whether they're in work, working um, for somebody else on a full-time or part-time basis, or whether they're, they're working for themselves. And, and we know very many sectors, and, and you pointed to some of them there, um, that you know uh, will have self-employed people uh, or, or people possibly employing others that are facing huge challenges. Mm. So anyway, it does behove government my concern and, and Sinn Féin's concern, Michael, is that what we're hearing from government uh, at this stage is um, what we've done so far is all we're going to do and we're not going to do anything else between now and Budget 2023, which is in October. And I just think that is a completely unrealistic uh, proposition, I think, for anybody that's sitting down you know, last week and they're listening to the board gosh increases, mm. if they read the papers at the weekend, the prospect is for you know, significant increases in, in household costs in the, in the weeks and months ahead. And it's not just Sinn Féin saying this, you know, whether it's the St. Vincent de Paul, Social Justice Ireland, mm. Age Action, groups that are working in the area. Sure, of- but we do have a bit of luck in this, in that the weather is changing for the better and we're going into the summer months. Yeah, well, well, that that is uh, that is something, Michael, and and, and um, you know that would would hopefully protect people in terms of the cost of heating your home. Electricity uh, is, uh, you know, and, and and it may may have an impact in terms of, of electricity as well. In fairness, in terms of the extended delays, um, but it won't impact in terms of the cost of food, it won't impact and those there are other areas Michael that, mm. that are significant impacts for, for people. Like no, well this doesn't happen in isolation, everything has gone to go up in price insurance or, or whatever, uh, bills come in your door are going to increase Exactly and, and you look in, in, in an Irish context there are particular uh, stresses in terms of the high cost of rent and of childcare, for example, and those are areas that that Sinn Féin have pointed to government towards that they need to do uh, take significant measures. And but, mm. but uh, well, our, our re- well, rent like, won't increase. But I mean, that, that's uh, maybe one of uh, the good things. It can't increase by more than two percent in most areas. Yeah, it, it, on paper, but everybody listening to this, Michael, and anyone with practical experience of 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 uh, living in rented accommodation knows that the practical reality is very different and, and rents are, are far exceeding that and the, the reports from DAFT.ie and others re- reflect that. So, so that's why Sinn Féin have called on government to uh, introduce a ban on rent increases for the next three years and to put a, a month's rent back into people's pockets because these are, you know, mm. in all of this, Michael, I think it is really important for government to recognise in a real way the impact that these increases are having on household incomes. And, and you know, it's not just, as I said, Sinn Féin saying this, the, the Red Sea, the ESRI um, and others have pointed towards the amount of people that are at risk of, of energy poverty. But the problem are, is that nobody knows what we're talking about. I mean, this war could end in two weeks. It could go on for another two years or, or God knows how long. And uh, the difference between uh, the two scenarios is unbelievable because if it goes on for two weeks, uh, there's a lot that can be done. But uh, how do you keep... Uh, funding people to heat their homes, if that's what you're going to do for uh, an indefinite period of time. But there are, and I agree entirely, and that, that's a fair thing to say, Michael, but there are some principles that should, uh, that should be sacrosanct in all of this. And it should be that we, we have responses that 
reflect the burden that is uh, that is on individual families and businesses. And uh, as I said at the outset, the, this additional burden doesn't affect everybody in the same way. Like it is a huge impact, and we we saw last week in terms of the board gas increases in the region of five hundred euros on mm. on a on a family bill. Five hundred euros is a huge amount, but it's it's a different reality in some households than it is, it is on others. If you're in a you know middle or high income, you potentially have the the capacity to to, to uh, the buffer there. Whereas on your if you're in low or a fixed income you might have no scope at all. So what's really important for government as a matter of principle, as far as we're concerned, is that they set out firmly that they will do everything that they can to protect those who are in mo- most in need and most at risk in relation to this. And we haven't seen that from government so far. Sinn Féin have pointed to a number of measures, for example, you know, the implementation of a 15 million euro discretionary fund, the expansion of the fuel allowance to those on working family payment that would bring mm. an extra 50,000 people in. The exceptional needs payment, the, the government say, you know, if, 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 you're not co- if you're not supported by the social welfare payments, just go to your, your social welfare office mm. and uh, look for... And do you, for, do you know how much that would cost? Oh, yeah, and, and Sinn Féin have, have outlined... OK. In our, in our but what if you added 100,000 people in, in, into those costs? 100,000 refugees and had to build housing for them as well. For sure, you know, absolutely. And that, that is, School that is places, uh, places in hospital. Uh, I think the Irish Cancer Society are, are concerned about Ukrainians coming here who need cancer care and so on. There's a, an awful lot of demands on government. Oh no, there, there, and, and, and I accept that, Michael. But but we also in the in the first instance, you know, but the same principle applies, Michael. Why are we making the, making those uh, facilities available to, to to those people from from Ukraine because they are in desperate need? We also have people in Ireland, you know, not 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 to the same extent, but uh, um, in a similar capacity, who who literally don't have the the, the capacity to take on board the extra five hundred or thousand euros that they. That the additional cost from from increasing fuel or, or or food is is going to put on them. So so I think that a targeted response is essential, Michael. And also, it's a fair point from from you. The government needs to be agitating and arguing for a European response mm. in relation to this. We need to see levers like we did during the pandemic in terms of fiscal and financial mm. rules that are constraints there, whether it applies to VAT or wherever mm. it applies to to give. Um, individual... Well, that, that is the ironic thing about it. Uh, as the price of everything goes up, uh, the government gets more in taxes, whether it's VAT, uh, which uh, it can't reduce. It's a pretty uh, happy time for the uh, exchequer. Uh, but uh, it's prevented from stopping all of that money coming in because of these European rules. Yeah, th- that's somewhat. And, and uh, I, I don't fully accept that the, the governments have have done everything that they can to, to, to argue for those measures to, to be removed. And I think they have more flexibility. For example, we saw it in relation to the argument about what's a, what's a carbon tax or what's an excise duty on, on home heating oil. And, and the government argued a, a, a defensive position. But I think it's quite clear that they could have done further uh, they could have gone further than than they did in relation to the cost of home heating oil if they had taken on board Sinn Féin's proposals. And, and we are putting those proposals again in a motion to the Dáil this week, so the government will have opportunity to to support them. Um, but I, I think it's important, Michael, when when we and others within the the the, the sectors 
call for government to do more in a targeted way and they respond by saying we can't protect everybody uh, in, a, a, against the impact of the war in Ukraine. I think they're being disingenuous. That's not what we're asking for. We know there is burden on this for everybody, but what our, our clear point is that some people are in a better position yeah. to... Well, I, I think what Pascal Dunhu said is that we may not be able to protect everybody, and he's right. I mean, there may be... But I agree. But there may I be agree. no gas. There may that's be no petrol. But that's, that's, not the, that's not the request from Sinn Féin and from others, Michael. If, look, if we come to that dire situation where there is rationing, you know, uh, we, we all hope to avoid that. We may end up there, but we really hope we don't. But before we get there, the government have clear options in front of them where they target the limited resources that are available to them. And what we're saying is target to those people who are most in need. And, you know, some are on social welfare payments, some are working, some are working full-time, part-time, others are working for themselves. But that that support needs to be targeted. And, you know, it needs to be a fundamental principle of, of how we move forward uh, during okay. this difficult time. All right. I have to leave it there. We're over time. But thank you for your time and thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Darren O'Rourke, uh, Sinn Féin TD for Me East and his party spokesperson on climate action. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, uh, thanks to John in County Cavan, uh, who uh, doesn't believe we should be taking refugees into the country. Um, he says there's uh, so much pressure on everything in this country already. I'm not sure, John, if uh, you've turned on your television or looked in a newspaper recently to see what's happening in the world. Uh, but that would seem a peculiar thing to be saying, given that people are being slaughtered every day in front of our eyes. Uh, they're the people that we're talking about who are fleeing for their lives. Women and children, mainly. <sighs> I don't know. Uh, Donald is in Drogheda. Donald says, I worry about the impact that the rise in energy prices is going to have on all of us, but especially on older people. My own mother, Donald says, is in her 80s and is already worried sick about how much her next fill of oil is going to cost to such an extent that she's barely putting the heating on. I don't want her to be cold and I'm telling her to switch it on when needed, but she is so worried that what I'm saying is falling on deaf ears. More support should be given, especially to older people. Thanks, Donald. It really is a problem, isn't it? And uh, we hope that uh, anybody uh, who is concerned uh, about the cost of heat um, won't be worried about putting it on um, because... uh, you can't be sitting in the house cold. Uh, do what you can to stay warm. And, you know, if you're uh, in a, a tight position, um, there is help there from groups like St. Vincent de Paul. Um, you can do things like heat one room, wear extra layers of clothes. I think Anne Dempsey of Third Age was suggesting that you wear thin layers of clothes so that you stay warm. Uh, and try to get some exercise, of course. Uh, listener in touch with us on WhatsApp, uh, wondering uh, how many of the refugees are, are going to be accommodated uh, by the church. Uh, he says uh, priests uh, have uh, big houses with just one or two priests living in them. Thank you very much indeed. I think there's been quite a, a number of offers uh, from the religious, anyway, uh, for accommodation. Uh, thanks to Breed, who was in touch, and she says, Michael, a man died in a tent last night. Uh, Now, Breed says we should be welcoming poor refugees and, she says, we should be opening up anywhere that's vacant, all of these empty places in the country for everyone. 
uh, out for dinner a few days ago. She says it was 200 euro for six people, glass of wine, seven euro. The place was full. And she says, it's time that we all copped on. Make sandwiches for lunch. No need to be walking around town carrying coffee cups. Every night meals are being delivered to people's houses. We need to stop being lazy and stop complaining. Thanks very much, uh, Breed, for that. Deirdre Kell says, Michael, it's dreadful that everything is going up in price. People's wages should go up like the ESB is going up again in April and I don't know where it's going to stop. I wish the government could step in, she says. Uh, Another call from somebody I wasn't completely sure um, what uh, this was saying, uh, but it's because I was saying that the weather is getting good uh, and uh, we'll have less need as we go into the summer to heater houses. Uh, but uh, our caller says uh, we have to put the fire on uh, to get hot water. Uh, I'm not sure it's a 5Z oil, maybe it's a, a typo, I'm not sure. Uh, but they're saying that they have to put the heat on, the fire on, uh, if they want uh, hot water. Uh, so uh, it doesn't matter uh, how warm the weather is if you want hot water. Uh, another uh, text then uh, from Marion Trim who says, how come the war doesn't affect the North as much as us in terms of oil prices and so on? Uh, thanks for that, Mary. Uh, I'm not sure what the answer to that is, uh, but uh, I imagine that there's going to be a problem because of shortages and uh, we're all going to see prices rise because it's international price increases. So if they haven't hit the north yet, I don't know if they have or haven't, but if they haven't hit the north yet, uh, I take it it's only a matter of time. Now, the Taoiseach, as you know, is in America. He was in America for St. Patrick's Day and ended up with COVID-19, as I'm sure you've been hearing over the course of the weekend. We have to meet virtually again this year, although I did at a little distance for seven and a half minutes get to see you yesterday but uh and your beautiful wife but uh and uh, especially after you flying all the way here to washington and with a lot going on up in the hill and the rest but uh just as you did last year the tradition this beautiful bowl the tradition of uh these beautiful shamrocks i have here with me um and we're meeting in a moment when uh Demands on unity in the world are really uh, um, accelerating. We have to be united, and we certainly are. And uh, But uh, I, uh, Putin's brutality and what he's doing and his troops are doing in Ukraine is just inhumane. And uh, so, uh, uh, you know, as you know, you, your predecessor and you occasionally kid me for always quoting Irish poets, but, uh, um, but Yeats had a great line in Easter Sunday, 1990. He said... All's changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty has been born. He was talking about his Ireland and what was going to come, which turned out to be better than, than worse. But all has changed. Uh, I think that uh, your leadership on the global stage has really uh, been noticeable and impressive. Uh, you're now a member of the, for temporarily, for the, as you are, a member of the Security Council. Your leadership on the global stage within the EU as well. And, uh, and uh, your condemnation of Putin's aggression and support of the, uh, of the sanctions. And it's costing Ireland. It's costing Ireland. But as usual, you're basing it on principle and moral standing of the country. Yeah, great praise uh, for the Irish and for Ireland from the American president, uh, Joe Biden, who, because of uh, the Taoiseach getting COVID-19, uh, met with uh, Micheál Martin virtually on TV screens. They spoke to each other. Last year, uh, we met virtually uh, across the Atlantic. Uh, this year, we're meeting virtually 
across the road. <laughs> so we're getting closer. Um, but I'm feeling good, and I think that reminds us of the importance of vaccines. Uh, and because um, vaccines prevent severe illness. Um, and uh, it reminds us that central message we give to people, get vaccinated if you're not vaccinated. Um, but of course, it, it is unfortunate, but it's no more than that. Uh, and, and I share with you um, our horror um, at the barbaric attack on the civilians of Ukraine. And uh, I want to take this opportunity uh, to genuinely salute your leadership. It's firm, it's determined, it's strong, it's measured. Uh, in the teeth of this crisis, and particularly your capacity to marshal uh, like-minded democracies, uh, the US, the European Union, uh, the United Kingdom, uh, the uh, other uh, Canada and other like-minded democracies are coming together um, to uh, respond uh, in an unprecedented way uh, to this barbaric attack uh, on the women and children of Ukraine, our thoughts are with them, and on the young people who are dying uh, because of this unjustifiable an immoral uh, war on, on a people by the regime of Vladimir Putin. And um, I think it's extremely important that we keep this unity of purpose um, over the, the, the coming while. Uh, and Ireland stands ready to do everything we possibly can uh, on the humanitarian front um, and in supporting the broadest and widest sanctions possible uh, to keep the pressure on uh, and to get this war um, ended uh, because there's simply too much suffering. Uh, and it's heartrending to see uh, the, the appalling loss of life and also the terrible trauma on the children of Ukraine and their mothers as they flee this war zone. And, and we're very seized by this in Ireland and, and the response has been uh, has been great to behold in terms of the, the, the people of Ireland who want to do everything they possibly can here. Michal Martin, the Taoiseach, speaking to the American President uh, Joe Biden on St. Patrick's Day. And as you know, President Biden is a, a big fan of Ireland and all things Irish and indeed peace on this island. And the President mentioned uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol and indeed uh, how he hopes to protect uh, the Good Friday Agreement. But I also want to emphasise... Uh, this administration's unequivocal support for the Good Friday Accords, for the Good Friday Agreement. Um, I've made that clear, as you probably heard, uh, to uh, the Prime Minister and others. I think it's too much uh, blood, sweat, and tears have been shed to get that done, and this is no time to change it. And uh, we have a full agenda to discuss, I know, uh, and, uh, but uh, deepening our cooperation Ireland, the United States, bilaterally and through the European Union, is uh, is uh, and taking on climate change, looking at economic opportunities we both have, and combating COVID um, combined is uh, something that we're going to work closely together on. We have a lot to talk about, but I'm talking too much. Let me yield the floor to you, uh, Tishuk, and uh, and you have my best wishes for. Everything. I know you're looking good, feeling good, but. I'm looking forward to getting it cleared as quickly as you can. That's the COVID-19 that the Taoiseach has and uh, developed in such uh, dramatic circumstances, or the news broke to Michal Martin in such dramatic circumstances over the weekend. Uh, the Taoiseach was very happy to hear what uh, Mr Biden had to say about the Good Friday Agreement. May I also just thank you uh, again uh, in respect of the Good Friday Agreement, your steadfast support and that of Speaker Pelosi uh, and our friends on, on the Hill, um, in, in giving a very clear message in respect of how important the Good Friday Agreement is uh, in respect of 
of stability and peace uh, on the island of Ireland. And uh, over the last number of days, as I've been here, we've also uh, witnessed once again that two-way, very robust economic relationship between the United States um, and Ireland. It's a two-way relationship. Met Irish companies yesterday who are creating 100,000 jobs in the US now. Uh, and that's because of that partnership uh, between Ireland, Europe, uh, and the US. So I look forward uh, to discussing these issues in greater detail. Uh, but again, uh, to say that it's wonderful to meet with you. Um, and um, we met in Glasgow recently. We had a good um, uh, chinwag there in respect of a number of issues. Uh, but again, that that also illustrated that partnership between Europe and the US in terms of the existential crisis of our time, climate change. So great to have this opportunity to meet with you, President. Well, I just want to say one thing while the President's here before they leave, and that is what Ireland is doing now, what you are doing, taking in Ukrainian refugees, speaks so loudly about your principles. And it's amazing, and I, I want to publicly compliment you for it. I think you've already brought in over 7,000 or so uh, 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 refugees from Ukraine, and you're prepared to do more. So, you, thank you, thank you. Just want to make sure everybody knows that. Okay. Thank you. Well, we have uh, taken in more than 9,000, uh, I think, at this stage, and uh, that figure may have actually exceeded uh, that uh, amount at uh, that at this stage. Uh, Joe Biden, the president of the United States, speaking to the Taoiseach, as Michal Martin said, across the road from the White House on St. Patrick's Day because of him having COVID-19, which uh, is uh, a bit of a problem this week uh, for Michal Martin uh, because he can't return for dull business tomorrow. And uh, is hoping, I'm sure, that they'll be able to return, but I think there's uh, little chance they'll be able to return for a meeting of European leaders later this week, an EU uh, Council Summit, uh, which will be held, and uh, if uh, he'll have somebody to deputise for him, or if that will be allowed, I think still not fully clear at this stage, uh, but quite possible that Simon Coveney will have to take the place of the Taoiseach at that meeting of the European leaders later in the week. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the health regulation of uh, termination of a Pregnancy Act 2018 uh, was as divisive as any piece of legislation could possibly have been before it was signed into law. A review of how the legislation that allows for abortion in this country is now underway. And again, opinion is divided. Let's speak to Alana Ryan, who's uh, the Women's Health Coordinator with the National Women's Council of Ireland, which is heading up a working group on abortion and has made a submission on behalf of 20 different organisations to this review. Good morning to you, Alana, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Tell us, first of all, why there's a review of the legislation. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me. So we're into the three-year review because this was mandated under the legislation that went through in 2018. And essentially, it's a chance to look at our um, abortion rollout and see where the barriers are and where the gaps are and use that evidence then to inform a better service delivery that works for women and pregnant people here. Okay, and I suppose it's impossible to say what the outcome of the review will be, but it could find 
faults uh, in how the uh, law is working in practice. And that could mean uh, that the legislation would become more restrictive or possibly, uh, uh, as I think you would like, uh, that uh, abortion would become more accessible. Well, I think I think it's very unlikely that it will become more restrictive because um, the overarching objective of this review is to raise quality standards and to ensure that the service is working on the ground and to see if there are barriers or difficulties in access that these are addressed using the research that's being undertaken with service providers and service users as well as the information that's coming through on this public consultation. And I suppose at the National Women's Council, um, in partnership with our colleagues in the abortion working group, so their organisations like Amnesty and the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, uh, providers like Doctors for Choice um, or Start Doctors or the Well Woman Centre and local groups like Together for Safety based in Limerick, um, for example, and the Abortion Rights Campaign, which is a national grassroots campaign, Together as 20 organisations, we're coming together to say, actually, there are still real and ongoing issues with abortion access and we really need to address these. And part of those barriers are arising because of the black and white letter of the law. So to do a meaningful review, we absolutely need to have those legal changes in scope. Okay, and you've been gauging opinion for that matter on how uh, the legislation is working in practice and Opinions Market Research interviewed 863 adults uh, about uh, abortion. Uh, Tell us a a little bit about the findings. Absolutely. So it was nationally representative research conducted in February by Opinion Market Research. And, uh, you know, the findings are really heartening and suggest that our recommendations are in keeping with the public mood. So 80% agree that no woman in Ireland should still have to travel abroad to access abortion care. Uh, 71% agree abortion should be treated like any other medical procedure and should not be a matter for criminal law. And 79% agree doctors should be trusted to provide abortion care based on professional judgment and clinical best practice. Okay, they're very high percentages. strong support for decriminalisation and Mm. access to care at home. Okay, they're very high percentages. Uh, A lot more people in favour of liberalising abortion, I take it. I think so. I think what we're seeing here is that ultimately the people voted in 2018 for women to be able to access care at home so that they would no longer have to travel and go through all of the difficulties and the additional barriers that come with having to get on a plane or a train or a boat to to get access to that care. And what we're seeing is, although it is working for many, there are still um, really big and significant issues with the legislation, particularly around fatal fetal anomalies. And those women with that diagnosis are still having to travel. And I think the the public is saying, you know, actually, that's not acceptable. We legislated, um, we voted to legislate for this to happen in Ireland so that no woman would have to travel. And so we need to provide that care at home. Right. And why is is it uh, that somebody would have to travel? Uh, I mean, you can uh, terminate a pregnancy uh, if there's a fatal, fatal diagnosis, can you not? So, so the way the legislation is constructed is that after 12 weeks, if you're seeking an abortion, it's only on the grounds of fatal fetal anomaly or risk to the health of the mother. And the ground for fatal fetal anomaly is very tight. So it says that two doctors must certify that that fetus will not survive more than 28 days outside the womb. 
And as you know, these diagnoses are really difficult. They're tragic. And rarely are they black and white. You know, doctors can't say with the level of certainty that's required in this criminal law framework, which we still have operating, that the fetus will survive less than 28 days. So we're seeing many cases where the doctors know that the fetus will die, but it's a short-lived life, but it won't fall within that 28-day window. And so when the women are receiving this diagnosis, they're continuing to have to travel uh, when the doctors can't certify the 28 days. And that's devastating because... You know, these are wanted pregnancies. These are um, children that were desperately wanted. We had a a woman uh, from termination for medical reasons speak at our press conference last week, and she had actually used IVF to become pregnant. As such was her desire to have a child. But um, actually, when it came to it, the doctors knew uh, following the scanning that the baby would not survive, uh, you know, at all very long. But they couldn't say with the confidence required that it would be less than 28 days. And so that woman had to travel to Liverpool uh, you know, in desperate circumstances, uh, very, very heartbreaking to see. And really, that's the kind of care that we should be able to access mm. at home uh, because it is just so so challenging and so upsetting and you need your support network around you. There is no restriction, is there, up to 12 weeks of pregnancy? So I gather uh, she was later into the pregnancy. Absolutely. So so these um, diagnoses usually only come through um, on the later scans, so around the 20-week mark when they're scanning uh, for for the development of the fetus at that stage. So generally the, the fatal fetal anomalies only come to light at around uh, the 20 weeks or thereabout. Okay. Uh, and um, in terms of that 12 weeks, uh, I gather you feel it should be pushed out to 20 weeks or, or further? Yeah, so our position is really that the 12 weeks is very tight. Um, Ultimately, it's 10 weeks from conception because of the way the 12 weeks is dated. It's dated from the first day of your last period. So really, it's 10 weeks since the conception of the child. And ultimately, um, you know, in that case, if you have to get a, a scan to date the pregnancy, if you're living in an area that has poor geographical coverage, we know that at the moment only one in 10 GPs is providing abortion care. When faced with the mandatory three-day wait, which is a, a you know a compulsory uh, three-day waiting period, many women can find themselves tipping over that 12-week point. Um, and so that's why we're saying that really there's no medical reason for it being a 12-week window. You know, it's not supported by Doctors for Choice or Start Doctors or any of the, the providers in the community. So really what we want to see is abortion available on request without these limits like the 12 weeks um, or the 28-day cut-off up to viability so that it is a conversation between the woman, a service user and uh, her doctor based on their professional and clinical judgment. Uh, and that's if a GP is willing to provide the service. Uh, there seems to be a problem with that. Yeah, I think it is really crucial that we, we use this review period to, to understand what the barriers to uptake are for GPs because it is only one in 10 GPs in the community providing care. And obviously that has huge 
uh, implications for ease of access, particularly for for disabled women and pregnant people. And, um, you know, it is meaning that within Ireland, we're seeing quite a lot of inter-county travel because the service may not be available in the local community. And obviously, if you have to arrange childcare or you have um, caring responsibilities for elderly parents, uh, maybe you have a, a, a career that isn't very flexible around time off, all of those things can make it very difficult. So we really do need to get to the bottom of why so few GPs are providing the service. Okay, is it uh, a fear of protesters uh, and doctors asking themselves, is it worth it? I think that that is a really big uh, a big concern because, you know, the safe access zones legislation was promised back in 2018 and yet we're now in 2022 and we still um, are still at the only the early stages of that um, bill progressing and it looks like it could be delayed further. And I think really we need to be giving um, doctors and all those who are working in healthcare facilities the peace of mind and the assurance that if they do step up and provide what is an essential re- reproductive health service, that their um, place of work will not be subjected to um, anti-abortion activities, harassment and intimidation of patients. Mm. And from our, our polling research, we know that that's something the public feels so strongly about. 85% agree that all individuals accessing and providing abortion care should be protected from threats, harassment mm. and abuse. Sure, uh, but it's very complicated. Uh, <laughs> I thought it was complicated until this morning. I saw the Irish Examiner. I'm not sure if uh, you've seen that that uh, story, uh, Alana, but uh, they're reporting uh, that there could be unintended consequences in providing these safe zones. Uh, And uh, there is a a bill which has been sponsored by Sinn Féin Senator Paul Gavin, which is in front of the Health Committee. And the examiner reports today that the advice from the department to that committee is that partners, relatives or friends accompanying a pregnant woman to have an abortion could be breaking the law if they offer advice or support inside one of the proposed safe access zones. Um, you know, I do think that we need to to really consider here what the implications of this kind of uh, concern are. Really, you know, there I think as something which could actually delay very vital legislation. And I think by sharing the the legal concerns that um, the government has, uh, then the health committee can work through that and amend the current bill so that it does take into account, um, you know, any potential uh, oversights or unintended consequences. But, you know, without legal expertise myself, Mm. I will find it very hard to believe that um, the current legislation that's going through would, uh, you know, would be uh, problematic in that sense. Mm. Well, sometimes uh, I think uh, the law can be daft, uh, but uh, it's certainly complicated if it's not daft, it would seem, Alana. Uh, We leave it there for the moment. Thank you, though, for joining us this morning. Alana Ryan, Women's Health Coordinator with the National Women's Council of Ireland, representing 20 or Organisations there who make up the abortion working group. Michael Reed on LMFM. Thanks to Ray Indulik, uh, who's uh, just texted to say it's nice to hear the discussion about women's rights and access to abortion as many women have to travel. But we still have Padreau Bean uh, supporting protesting against women attending these services right outside of the centres, uh, the protests, I take it. Ray, thank you indeed for your text. And speaking of Padreau Bean, good morning, Padreau Bean, and thank you indeed for joining us this morning. 
Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Ray and Dulika is, of course, correct. You do uh, indeed support the right to protest, uh, albeit outside of a medical health centre. Yeah, I would support the you know democratic freedoms such as the right to protest and the right to free speech for everybody in Irish society. Um, around the issue of abortions, it's obviously a very very difficult issue. Uh, Twenty thousand abortions have happened in Ireland in the last three years, and it's heartbreaking to think that you know twenty thousand individual living human beings have lost their lives in this country uh, because of this law. It's the equivalent to nearly nine hundred classrooms of children. Uh, who are no longer with us uh, because of what's happened in abortion clinics and uh, doctor surgeries and hospitals uh, in the last three three years. And actually 98% of those abortions were actually carried out on healthy mothers and healthy children, according to the information coming from the department. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's incredible as well. 85% of these abortions happened because of economic reasons. The Committee on the Eighth that uh, was... Uh, constituted before the referendum indicated that 85% of all abortions that happened uh, to Irish mothers uh, happened because of the economic situations that they're in, that many many women feel that they have no choice. And we know last year, for example, that mothers were giving birth homeless um, last year. And it's, it's incredible that we're still as a society lacking in the necessary compassion to provide all the supports necessary to protect both the mother and the child. And I think that's what we need to do in a compassionate society. Okay, and what do you make of uh, that woman that Lana Ryan of uh, the Women's Council was telling us uh, about uh, a few minutes ago? It's Alison Lynch uh, who went to Liverpool in 2019 to have her first pregnancy terminated. And as Lana said, she actually got pregnant using IVF because she really, really wanted a baby. Uh, The Irish Times reported uh, last week that doctors told Alison Lynch that her baby was going to die but they didn't know when. If he did survive he would have daily seizures, he would need multiple operations and have severe breathing difficulties because his little ribs weren't allowing his lungs to develop and she said she couldn't bring a child into this world to suffer like that. Yeah, my my heart goes out uh, to that mother um, over the situation that she's been in Um, and, and this is what we warned before the referendum uh, when the the exact same campaigners came on to radio stations and said that we need to have uh, abortion in cases of children with disabilities uh, and life-limiting conditions. We said then that you know it is impossible for any doctor to be able to say exactly what the outcome for a child will be. And you know, ma- no matter how you actually design this legislation, there will always be situations uh, where doctors will get it wrong. And I raised this situation um, in the National Maternity Hospital a number of times uh, in the Dáil, where a mother and father were told exactly the same thing, that their child was going to have a life-limiting condition, that the child was going to die. Uh, An actual fact, after the abortion happened, uh, it was found out that the child didn't have a life-limiting condition and wasn't going to die. And, you know, we have situations where doctors are, are making decisions uh, which are ending up in the death of a human being. And I think that's a really heartbreaking situation. And what we need to do is protect children with disabilities in this country. 
um, all children should be equal, no matter if they have a disability or not, and their right to life should be protected in all situations. And we also said in, in, in advance of that legislation coming through that no matter how little abortion that you provide through legislation, abortion campaigners will come back year after year and keep pushing for more abortions. And that's what they're looking to do. And, and at the very opening of your interview, it's very interesting. You asked, is it likely that the, the legislation will become more protective or, or less protective? And your contributor said, well, it's very unlikely that it's going to become more protective. It's going in, the legislation will go in one way. And I think, you know, that's, that's a heartbreaking situation. We need to provide supports for mothers so that they can be confident that they can bring their child to term and raise that child to their full potential. Okay, but that mustn't have been an easy decision for that woman. Uh, she, you know, she obviously really wanted a child. I think anybody who goes through IVF uh, will tell you how important having a child, uh, starting a family is to them. Uh, but for her then to feel that it would be wrong to bring that child into the world, it would be cruel to bring that child into the world. It must have been a, a dreadful decision for her, a dreadful journey for her there and back uh, and a problem that we exported. It, it is a dreadful decision to, for anybody to have to make and, and actually I believe and many people believe that no person should have to make that decision to be honest uh, that no person should have to make a decision of whether or not a child is brought into uh, the, the, the world you know, when, when there's a child in the womb, that that child should have an equal right to life, uh, whether the child has a disability or not. And it is incredible, think about it for a second, that we're actually now deciding on whether a child should live on the basis of whether the child has a disability. And, you know, it's interesting as well in how this whole debate is framed and contextualized, because we know that 98% of the abortions that are happening in this state are happening to healthy mothers and healthy children. So every, every time there's a, a debate around whether or not abortion should be uh, made uh, more uh, unregulated in this country, the focus is about the 1.8% of the abortions and never uh, the case for you know, the, the rest of the abortions. So 17,000 abortions happened in the last three years, not because the child was ill or had a disability or the mother was ill or had a disability, but because simply that mother didn't have the economic supports that she felt were necessary to be able to raise their child. Now imagine if we as a society actually said, let's do the decent thing by these mothers, let's actually give them a choice, and let's protect the lives of these children by making sure that those mothers have homes, that they have income supports, that they have educational supports, and health supports. That would be a... a, a a society that has compassion that would be a society that helps women and it would also be a society where we'd have tens of thousands of, of children living amongst us and giving them a real start uh, of life and a real opportunity to live uh, and unfortunately that's not what the debate is, it, the debate is about and in relation to, you, you discussed about whether or not uh, abortion should and, and I think the, mm. the, the premise of this is the criminalisation aspect uh, of abortion um, no, no, nobody wants to criminalise women uh, when it comes to abortion. And indeed, no woman has ever been criminalised uh, when it comes uh, to abortion. And the Eighth Amendment has never seen a situation where a, wo a woman uh, or a mother was brought to court, or indeed a doctor uh, was brought to a court. But we have now, since the law was changed, a situation where the National Maternity Hospital aborted a healthy child in a late-term abortion called Christopher, and 
now there's actually a situation where doctors will be brought to court uh, because of, of a child that was aborted in a late-term abortion. So in, instead of actually, you know, creating a situation where the law is, is clear on the rights of mothers and, and their children and doctors, now we have a situation where it's more likely that the law will be broken and that people will, will therefore have a penalty brought to them uh, in relation to it. And remember, that the reason why many people want to see the decriminali- decriminalization of abortion is because they want abortion up until um, mm. uh, the child is viable, uh, because maybe the child has a disability, uh, or because of the gender of the child. In the north of Ireland, Sinn Féin and the SDLP voted for abortion if the child has, has Down syndrome up to 24 weeks, if the child has a cleft palate up to 24 weeks. And we have to ask ourselves a question, you know, do people have human rights universally do do every single living individual human being have a right to life but why should what about the rights human... of a woman uh, i mean it's a simple question isn't it uh, that it's the woman's decision uh, if she decides to terminate her pregnancy that's her decision and surely her decision should be respected well, uh, well obviously the law doesn't agree that it's a, it's, it's a case uh, where an individual should be able to end the life of another human being um in, in most situations and there are differing rights, and sometimes there has to be a balance of rights uh, in a liberal democracy. Um, but the right to life is the most important right that anybody has. It's a universal human rights. And, Michael, if someone were to say that they had a right to end your life or any of your listeners' life, you would say, well, actually, that's wrong, that that shouldn't happen, that the universal right to life should be protected. Um, but if you start taking a section of human beings out of human rights, well, then those rights are no longer universal. And it's actually a very dangerous and slippery slope taking sections of humanity out of human rights uh, because that can be broadened over and over again. And in actual fact, what we're seeing now with this push by abortion campaigners is the desire to take more and more human beings out of the human rights to life. Uh, We need a society that actually has the instinct of protecting every single human being to believing in, in the idea of equality, to believing in the idea of the potential of people, never mind whether they're disabled or not, that they have a value, intrinsic value anyways within society. You know, if you decriminalize abortion in this country, you'll be able to have an abortion on the basis of whether or not the, the child is a girl. And we know there's 100 million missing women in the world at the moment, because in many societies, girls are valued less than boys, and as a result, there are far more baby girls aborted than, than baby boys. And that's obviously shocking on, on, on an equality basis, but it's also leading to big skews in populations in places like India and China, etc., where there are far more boys now than girls. Okay. And yet none of that's discussed uh, by these abortion campaigners. None of the outcomes of their desire to decriminalise uh, uh, abortion further okay. is ever discussed. I, I think we heard both sides of the argument loud and clear this morning, if nothing else. So thanks uh, for giving us uh, that side of the argument Thank and you. indeed for joining us on the programme. As always, Peter Tobin, Ain to founder and leader and a TD for Meath West. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, given the situation in Mariupol uh, this morning, it's quite possible uh, that the city will become a mass grave for the 300,000 civilians uh, who are still in it. One of the problems that they have 
is getting food. All of uh, the supermarkets, it seems, have been bombed and have closed down as a result. And people are said to be terribly hungry if uh, not starving at uh, this stage. And uh, undoubtedly, food shortages will be commonplace uh, across Ukraine. Let's speak uh, to Danny Smith, who's UNICEF's Ireland's Communications and Media Manager. And a very good morning to you, Danny. Thanks for joining us on uh, the programme. Uh, UNICEF has sent out some 85 trucks carrying 858 tonnes of emergency supplies to Ukraine uh, and undoubtedly uh, that will go some way to helping the people who are there in that terrible situation. Absolutely, Michael. Well, thanks very much for having me on. Yeah, so as you said, just over since the since the, the crisis or the, the war started, uh, UNICEF has dispatched over 85 trucks. Um, so that's over 800 tonnes of absolutely critical supplies. So they'd be things like health supplies, hygiene kits, um, but also things you know, that children need, like education and recreational supplies, because what we're seeing in, in the Ukraine now is an absolutely traumatising and horrific situation for children, and um, the situation that children face uh, across the country, and particularly in areas, as you highlighted, like Mariupol, uh, it's absolutely dire. Um, it's it's traumatising children, it's injuring injuring children, and, and, and children are dying. Um, you know, they're being forced to flee, they're 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 seeing their families and, and everything they know kind of ripped away from them. So really, we're um, you know absolutely very very concerned uh, about the situation and kind of horrified by by the, the scale of the war at this stage. I take it it's impossible, is it, to get into Mariupol? Where is uh, Ukraine? Uh, where is UNICEF uh, working in Ukraine at the moment? So UNICEF is working across the country. Uh, as you can imagine, you know, it, it, in some areas it really is, it can be challenging to get uh, safe and, and unimpeded access. Um, but, you know, we're really working at all times to try um, and get access where we need to, you know, where children are being affected, where the needs are greatest. Um, and, you know, UNICEF would call on all actors, uh, everyone in, in, involved in the in the conflict, to to ensure that, uh, humanitarian humanitarian organisations like UNICEF and others are given unimpeded access um, because you know in areas like Mariupol, uh, children and families they they urgently need critical life-saving supplies, medical care, uh, different things like that. So so we really are calling on 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 everyone involved to 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 give uh, humanitarian actors. Mm. Um, unimpeded access at this time. Yeah, very difficult to get in if it's impossible to get out and it seems to be impossible to get out of uh, Mariupol at the moment but some 9 million people are, are said uh, to have left Ukraine and 1.5 million children for that matter. Uh, that's a, a lot of people on the move and of course with that comes uh, its own challenges. Uh, absolutely. So yeah, as you said, you know, we're seeing uh, 3 million refugees um, who have had to flee the country, and over 1.5 million of them are children. And uh, I suppose when you get into numbers, you always, you know, you, we can get lost in the numbers sometimes. But but ultimately, every that's 1.5 million individual children who have been forced to leave everything they want, everything that they know behind, the security, the safety, um, and the kind of the rhythms of home. Nobody wants to leave their home, um, but these children have been have been forced to. to the flee. Um, and I suppose what, what UNICEF is particularly hiding, highlighting now is the concerns that we have around, um, you know, when a child is forced to flee their home, and we've seen this across the world, sadly, um, they're at heightened risk of exploitation, of 
kind of horrors mm. like like trafficking. Um, so we just all need to be be, be conscious that the children who are fleeing now um, are at increased vulnerability, um, whether they're fleeing their home um, internally or whether they're fleeing to, to neighbouring countries. Because, as you said, you know, nine to ten million people have been forced to flee their homes within the country. A number of them have, have or you know, three million of them have have left the country. But there's a lot of internally displaced um, people and children as well. So. The, you know, the concerns are very much making sure that, that the right child protection measure, measures are there, that children have uh, access to, you know, if they are, in the worst case, traveling unaccompanied, that they get um, access to, to the services that they mm. need as soon as possible, that, that, that their security is, is absolutely paramount. So It's hard to believe how bad people can be, isn't it, Danny? I mean, you know, I suppose most people are looking at what's happening in Ukraine with horror. Uh, but to think of living through that and escaping it into the hands of human traffickers. But there are reports of human traffickers in the border countries. There, there are, yeah. It, like, it, it is. It's, it's revolting. It's, it's, it's impossible to get in the minds of these people, I suppose, um, you know, to, to, to think of, of, of someone who would be looking to exploit the situation and exploit children and families who'd be forced to leave Ukraine. Yeah, it's, it's, very, it's very difficult to, to even get your head around it. Mm. Um, and I suppose, I suppose that's why it is happening. It is happening, you know, and, and that's why UNICEF and other organizations are trying to come together now to, to highlight the dangers that children are facing, to highlight these risks and ensure that, that children are protected um, one of the things that UNICEF is doing with uh, partners like the UNHCR is we're establishing uh, what are called blue dots. And essentially they're safe spaces that, that children and families can go to when they do cross the border into, into neighbouring countries. Um, you know, they'll have a number of different services within the one space. So it could be for, for children, you know, it could just simply be a place where they're free to play, that they yeah. have the security that they're, they're given, you know, critical medical supplies or, or, or just, you know, educational supplies so that they can have a, a sense of normality for, for a few moments. And but then we'll be working mm. with as well. And what about when people arrive to this country? Uh, we've 20,000 offers, uh, I think, isn't it, uh, of accommodation. Um, should those people offering that accommodation be vetted? Uh, I, I, yeah, so I, I'm not actually familiar with the, the process that's happening mm. for, for those who are coming in here. I have heard... You know, it's really inspiring to see the support that, mm. that everyone in Ireland is giving for Ukraine, um, whether that's being, you know, donations for, for support for, um, for the work that's going inside Ukraine or neighbouring countries, or, as you said, people who are offering their homes here in Ireland to support, uh, you know, to support Ukrainians who are coming here, um, as well any work that the government is doing. All of these things should be welcomed because... This is really a time for all of us to show solidarity and compassion for the people of Ukraine. Um, but of course, you know, in terms of um, uh, any situation where, where a child is, you need to make sure that all the, the best child safeguarding practices and procedures are, are in place. So. Okay, well, UNICEF working with children all over the world and with Ukrainian children in Ukraine and beyond its border. Uh, and uh, I'm sure, uh, Danny, people are being very supportive, as you've said, and making donations to UNICEF to help you do that work. Oh, it's been, Michael, it's been been incredible n- number of weeks. Um, you know, as you said, we, we work across the world and we work in, in some of the most difficult and challenging situations and, and people are always incredibly supportive. 
But um, the last number of weeks has just been um, remarkable in terms of how people have responded to this crisis. Um, I think, you know, whether it's through the support for UNICEF or other organisations who are who are working at the front line, um, Irish people and people in Ireland have just responded, um, again, re- really generously. Um, as you said, you know, you also hear cases of, of up to 20,000 people offering their home. Those kind of things mm. are, are hugely powerful. And I think, you know, um, they're, the, they're the right thing to happen at this time. Um, and on behalf of UNICEF, you know, we're extremely grateful for any support that we can do. Um, that allows us to be there in the Ukraine uh, and in neighbouring countries supporting children. All right, Danny, thanks very much uh, for talking to us uh, this morning. Uh, That's uh, Danny Smith's UNICEF's Ireland's Communications and Media Manager. Uh, Thanks to Brian Hanratty, uh, who called us following our discussion with Darren O'Rourke about the cost of living. And uh, Brian says that uh, it's a question of personal responsibility to some degree, uh, and uh, that isn't coming through, particularly people who are more fortunate who maybe could reduce their travel and their heating. Brian thinks the European Union has let us down badly in terms of the planning of food security and energy policy. We're so dependent on outsiders, whether that's Russia or the Middle East, he says. Thank you indeed. That's the final word. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.